Welcome to The Leader's Notebook with Dr. Mark Rutland. Dr. Rutland is a world-renowned leadership expert. He is a New York Times best-selling author, and he has served as the president of two universities. The Leader's Notebook is brought to you by Global Servants. For more information about Global Servants, please visit our website, globalservants.org. Here is your host, Dr. Mark Rutland. I want to speak tonight on a single word. I, I think that sometimes we think about the passion of Christ. And then, of course, that fabulous movie came out and uh, Mel Gibson's movie on the passion of the Christ. It was such a great movie. We think of his passion. But sometimes it causes us to forget one of his other great characteristics, and that is his compassion. We do not live in a compassionate world. Now, I, I would like to read several scriptures tonight as we work through this, and I want to speak to you tonight about becoming a compassionate Christian. I want to read, first of all, if you'll uh, turn there to um, Matthew chapter 9, Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. Matthew 9 and 36. But when he, now that he means Jesus, of course. But when Jesus saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they were faint and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Then he saith he to his disciples, the harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into the harvest. Verse 36, but when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them. Compassion is a sympathetic awareness of the distress of others coupled with a sincere desire to alleviate it. In other words, compassion is in part empathy, to feel what they feel, but that's not enough. If I feel what they feel, it gives me a momentary sense of anguish or a tear in the corner of my, of my, but I am not motivated. I am not moved in any way to do what I can to change their painful condition. It is not true compassion. Look at Jesus in this one passage of scripture. He not only feels compassion, it says he is moved with compassion on them. But then he is moved to energize others into leadership and into intercessory prayer and into ministry. He says to his disciples, pray, look at them. Look at these people. Look at them without leadership. Look how confused they are. Don't you feel anything when you look at them? Pray, he says. Pray to God as us send laborers on the harvest. So Jesus not only feels compassion, he is moved to act upon it. There are three kinds of persons that I've been able to identify that are incapable of compassion. The legalist is incapable of compassion, the supreme legalist, the extreme legalist, because he sees law above people. He cannot, he cannot show compassion because the law is supreme to him. The people who brought the woman taken in adultery and threw her at the feet of Jesus in a public street. They, they, they cared nothing for her humanity. They, they were not moved by her humiliation. The Bible is graphic in, it, in its language. It not only says she was taken in adultery, it says in the act of adultery. So she is dragged from the bed into the public street. There is one question I'd like to ask. Where is the man in this story? You know, she wasn't committing adultery like alone. 
So there, there, there is, the legalist is outraged. He is outraged at the break, at the breaking of the law. He's not moved with her humanity. He's not moved with compassion for the humiliation that she's going through, for what she's experiencing. He just wants to make an object of her. Legalistic religions have no compassion. It's one of the, one of the great of many, many problems with Islam. Islam is a legalistic religion. There's no sense of compassion, no sense of, of wanting to, to help those who break the law. If you steal a penny, we cut your hand off. If you, and my children were starving. My, my wife was sick and we don't care anything about that. You're a thief and, and Quran says, cut your hand off. We'll cut your hand off. There's no sense of, of compassion, no sense of compassion for others. The second kind of person that is incapable of compassion is the, the mocker. I, I, I've got a word tonight for young people, particularly young adults, the, the Gen Xers. I, I hope you'll listen to me just for a moment. I, I love you, but I, I need you to hear this. Your generation has so idolized and venerated humor that it is an, that if something is funny, it is an excuse for any kind of hurt that it inflicts. And I would, I would just like to suggest to you that there are some things that are not funny. I hear young people say all the time, I know he shouldn't have said that. I know it was something irreverent or vulgar or hurtful or something, but it was just so funny. I, if you can, if you can bring yourself to say, there are some things that are not funny, and I will not be drawn into it. I won't laugh at those things, especially those things that inflict pain, that are sarcastic and mean-spirited, who that mock others. Bitter humor at the expense of others is not funny. The third person and the most dangerous kind of person who is incapable of compassion is the radical with a cause. They're utterly incapable of compassion because the cause allows no mercy. The, the terrorist who blows up a building filled with innocent people, the, the cause justifies that. He has no room. There's no room in his life, no room in his heart for mercy. Now, I'm going to say something to you too. There's such a thing as church terrorists. It's not just, not just out in the world. I'm not just talking about IRA bombers somewhere. I, I went to uh, preach a funeral in a tiny little church in South Georgia some years ago, and the the senior pastor I was visiting, the older pastor who was there, quite uh, an elderly man in his late 70s, early 80s, and his wife was ill at home, literally in the final stages of cancer, and he was there to preach this funeral with me at his church. When we left the church to go out to the cemetery, it was cold. In January, cold rain that was very nearly to the point of sleet. And we got out to the cemetery and, and he said, do you, do you have a, an umbrella or a, or a raincoat or anything like that? I said, I don't, but it won't, it won't last long. I said, sir, do you have anything? You don't need to be out in this. And he said, I don't have a thing. I didn't bring a thing, but he, he reached underneath his seat of his car and he said, you know, my, my wife's raincoat is here. My wife's raincoat is here. He said, I think I'll just put that on. Do you think anybody will mind? I was so young and naive. I said, why, no. Who would mind? They wouldn't want their pastor to stand out in a freezing rain. And I helped him put that little pink 
raincoat on. And we went out and did the little graveside service in a freezing rain. Poor old man with his wife's pink raincoat on. What I thought, what could that hurt? The church hounded him out of the ministry. They just wouldn't let it go. They just pounded on it and pounded on it and pounded on it. How dare you humiliate us, embarrass us. There were people from the community that were here that saw you wearing that. They had no compassion. They couldn't be concerned for the fact that his wife was at home dying with cancer, that he couldn't afford to catch a cold and be sick, that he had to take care of her. They had no compassion. Terrorists, the radical with a cause, has no room for compassion. So you have the legalist, the radical with a cause, and the sarcastic mocker. Jesus is none of these. Jesus is filled with compassion. Every time you open scripture, you find Jesus being moved with compassion. Tenderness is a part of compassion. You hear this word, it says he is moved with compassion. It's used over and over and over again. In other words, you cannot really be compassionate unless you have the capacity to feel. If you have so calloused your heart to a place where you cannot even feel anybody else's pain, you cannot even experience what somebody else is sensing. Jesus was the son of God. He was God. He was divine. And yet he could pass by people that were sick or wounded. Don't you think it must have, maybe I'm imposing, God forbid, my own sinful and egotistical carnality on the son of God, but... Think about it. He came from heaven, perfection, holiness, the presence of God, angels, into a world of our sinful, wicked, broken stupidity. Doesn't it seem, am I the only one, doesn't it seem that there must have been times when he said, really? Really? You did that? Maybe that's, it doesn't, maybe I'm imposing on him, but you never seem to hear that. You never seem to see that from him. He sees people do the stupidest, most sinful, wicked things, people that are filthy and confused and hurting, and he says he is moved with compassion for them. We pray all the time, what would Jesus do? You remember the little bracelets that came out, WWJD? If you're wearing one tonight, I'm not picking a fight, please. <laughs> I just never liked those bracelets. What would Jesus do? I always thought that doesn't help me. I know what Jesus would do. Walk on water. <laughs> I don't want to know what Jesus would do. I want to know what is W. I want a bracelet that says W-I-J-R-L. What is Jesus really like? I may not be able to do what Jesus does, but I want to be like him. I want to feel what he feels. I want to experience what he experiences. When I walk down the street and see some drunk staggering down the street, I don't want to say, oh, look at that. Look at that nasty old bum. Somebody ought to just put him out of his misery. Why don't they just lock him up? Why can't I feel what Jesus feels? He says, look, that's one of my children. That's somebody's little boy. That's somebody's dad. That's somebody that's hurting. That's what Jesus feels. That's what I want. I don't want to just do what he does. I want to feel what he feels. If we can be moved with compassion, it is because something within us is tender enough to be touched. If you have lost that, if you have lost that, 
If you've become hard and angry and judgmental, and life can do, life can do it to you. But if that has happened, then I suggest to you tonight that you turn to the Holy Spirit and begin to say, God, soften me up again. Soften me up again. I don't want to just be mad at sinners. I, I want to be compassionate for what they're going through. If you think that Jesus stands at the foot of the bed of a 19-year-old boy who's dying with AIDS because of his promiscuous homosexual lifestyle, if you think Jesus stands at the foot of his bed and says, well, you finally got what you deserve, then your Jesus is my devil. I do not compromise on that boy's sin. I don't compromise on that boy's sin. Sin is sin. Sin is sin, but Jesus feels compassionate for those people who are hurting because they've done it to themselves. He doesn't say you finally got what's coming to you. In fact, let's just ask right now. How many of you, if you'll raise your hand, how many of you want what's coming to you? No. How many of you would like, oh, let's, we'll pray right now. How many say, I just want what I deserve? No, not one. No, I don't want what I deserve. I don't want what's coming to me. Do you? No, that's what, that's the wonderful thing about sharing eternity with Jesus. We don't get what's coming to us. We get what's coming to him. Now, let me give you a few places where Jesus' compassion is shown. The first is the passage which we read. Jesus sees people who are lacking leadership, uncovered, without protection, scattered abroad. The lack of unity, the lack of familyhood, of connection moves Jesus. When he sees people that have lost connection, that are just floating through life without a sense of belonging anywhere. They don't have a connection. They have no roots. He is moved with compassion for them. As people today, especially in the West, are suffering from a sense of isolation and alienation. We are distressed. We are disconnected. We are downtrodden. My wife uh, pulled up at a stop sign, and in order to turn right, she needed to nudge out a little further so she could see to the left. And she just nudged out a wee bit into the intersection. A runner came by just running by her car and stopped in front of her car and brought his fist down with all his might on the hood of her car because her car, he had to run a little bit around her car and just smashed his fist down on the hood of her car. She was terrified. You know, we live in a very angry world. And part of that anger is because of the sense of alienation and isolation. It's one of the things that a church can provide and does provide is connection. We, we are moved with compassion for the, for the man who needs a friend, for the single mom who needs connection, who is fatigued and tired, who, who comes to church on Sunday. And, and let's be honest. Yes. She wants her kids to get something during children's church. What she really would like is an hour without them. <laughs> yes, she says, see if you can just get the demons out of them. That's all I'm asking. <laughs> so church, a church that is moved with compassion feels what she feels. 
the guy who's lost his wife and is trying to figure out what to do with the rest of him. Jesus feels his sense of disconnect. The second place, if you will, turn to the gospel according to Mark, the sixth chapter, and the 34th verse. The first verse is very like the one we just read. Mark chapter 6 and 34. And Jesus, when he came out, saw many people and was moved with compassion toward them because they were as sheep not having a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Now look at the last part. And when the day was now far spent, his disciples came unto him and said, this is a desert place. Now the time is far past. Send them away that they may go into the country around about and into the villages and buy themselves bread for they have nothing to eat. And he answered and said unto them, you give them something to eat. Jesus is moved with compassion for the hungry for those longing for bread, for those famished in body and soul. Our eyes can get so weary with watching the kind of devastating things that are going on overseas. We get, we get crisis, crisis numbed. We see the little babies starving to death in Ethiopia and we see, you know, this famine in this place and this kind of thing. And when we get to, it doesn't even touch us anymore. God forbid. God forbid. That's the reason that I love the heart for missions in this church, that we are moved with compassion for those with hungry souls and hungry bodies and hungry lives that are longing for something. We feel their hurt. We feel their, their, their hunger. Listen to this. The malnourished will eat anything. Therefore, the malnourished cannot think of anything else but existence. They have no creativity, no energy, nothing extra. They don't care about beauty or bounty or creativity or wisdom or knowledge. They just want to exist. What Jesus wants is to lift them up and give them life and life more abundant, to move them into the place where they can, where they can think creatively, where they can dream again, where they're, they're not constantly worried about empty bellies. And therefore, he says to the church, he says to all of us, you feed them. You be concerned for their hungry lives, for their, for their famished souls. Yes, food. Yes, food, but also the word of God. That's the reason that the church also says we feel what Jesus feels for people, for folks who don't know spiritually their right hand from their left. Then there is this other place. I'd like for you, if you will turn to Mark chapter 1 and verse 41. Mark 1 and 41. And Jesus, moved with compassion, put forth his hand and touched him and saith unto him, I will be thou clean. This is a leper, a man with leprosy who comes to Jesus. I want you to hear this. At the heart of neo-pharisaical legalism in the modern church, is a a secret whisper that says if people are sick, it's because they deserve it. If people are sick, it's because they did something. There's some secret sin in their lives. If people are sick, it's because they don't have enough faith. If people are sick, it's because something. But Jesus isn't concerned with that. This guy comes to him with leprosy. It's against the law for Jesus to touch this man. He's nasty. 
Leprosy is a, is a horrible disease. It's an affliction that causes the deadening of nerve ends and in your extremities. And so that you can hold a, a pot that is boiling and you can't even feel it. So it burns your fingers off. This guy is, is dying with a horrible, nasty disease that is against Jewish law for anybody to touch a leper, let alone a rabbi. And he comes to Jesus and says, Lord, heal me, heal me. Jesus doesn't say, well, I wonder what you did. Look at you. Get away from me, you nasty person. Or why didn't he say, I'm not healing you. If you have enough faith in God, you'll get well. Instead, Jesus is moved with compassion. I do not believe that it's possible for a church to have a really effective healing ministry that doesn't have the effect of compassion. We do not just simply take part in the healing ministry because it glorifies God. We take part in the healing ministry because people are sick, because people are hurting, because people are wounded. That's, the, that's one of the motivating factors for the healing ministry is that we feel what they feel. That's not my job to sort out why somebody's sick. It's not my job to sort out who has faith and who doesn't. It's only my job to feel what they feel and to sense God's love and compassion for them and to reach out and touch them with loving hands. That's the job of the church. You want to know one of the most beautiful passages in the Bible to me? It's when Jesus was at dinner with all the big shots in town and everybody's there. And as it'd be in the Middle East right now, you would have this. In order to catch even the faintest breeze, all the doors are open. People walk by right on the street. I've had people walk right into dinner parties in, in the Middle East. And people are walking by and they're at dinner. And this lady rushes in, unknown prostitute, rushes in, falls at Jesus' feet and begins to kiss his feet at the dinner table. The mayor is there, the chief of police. Pastor at First Church, they're sitting right there. And they all said, whoa, <laughs> if he was really who he says he is, he'd know what they, what this woman was like. You want to, you want to know the secret of the wonderful story in this, the secret of this story? Listen to this. Do you want to know what is the most beautiful thing that Jesus did? Nothing. He didn't move. He didn't flinch. He didn't pull away. I know my sinful heart. She rushes in and starts kissing. I was get up. What's the matter with you? People are going to wonder where we met. (laughs) Jesus is not concerned for his reputation. He's not concerned for what these guys think. He's only concerned for the, the hunger and the disease. This poor, wounded, used woman has come in off of the street and finally found somebody that she can worship and adore with a clean heart, and Jesus refuses to draw away from her. That means, don't you see, that there is no one in this room, no one under the sound of my voice, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, experienced, no matter the nastiest thing that's ever happened to you, when you reach out to Jesus, his compassion causes him to sit still. He will never draw away. The sick and the infirm move him to compassion. And then if you'll turn to Luke chapter 7, this is a very, very important one. Luke chapter 7, beginning with verse 11. 
I know this is a little bit Bible study-ish, but it's Wednesday night. Luke chapter 7 and verse 11. And it came to pass the next day that Jesus went into a city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him and many people. Now when he came near to the gate of the city, behold, there was a dead man carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow, and many people of the city were with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said unto her, Weep not. And he came and touched the bier that they who bore him stood still. And he said, Young man, I say unto thee, Arise. And he that was dead sat up and began to speak. And Jesus delivered him to his mother. I just want you to see, it says, Jesus was moved with compassion. Not for the dead boy, for the widowed mother who is left behind. He is moved with compassion for her grief. We, we sometimes, in the spirit-filled world, come to such a place where we are at odds with our own emotions. So that we are actually in a place of cognitive dissonance, a place where we feel things, but we're afraid to admit them because they don't sound spiritual. Do you know that there is absolutely nothing wrong with a Christian feeling grief? There's nothing wrong with that at all. We do not grieve as pagans grieve that are hopeless, but we grieve. There is nothing at all wrong with you feeling grief. Jesus is not disgusted by it. He doesn't walk to the funeral and say to her, what's the matter with you, you stupid old woman? Don't you believe in the resurrection? He's moved with her, with her sense of loss. You know, you know, everybody loves, when I, how many of you were in elementary school when they said you had to memorize a verse of scripture, you memorized, uh, John 1135, Jesus wept? Am I the, am I the only sinful little brat that was in the third grade? John 1135, that was my verse for like 30 years. <laughs> People say, what's your favorite? Oh, John 1135, Jesus wept. But I'm going to tell you something. It's a great verse. It's a great verse. He knew that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He was going to the cemetery to raise him from the dead. He knows that he is the resurrection and the life. He's going there to raise Lazarus from the dead. And yet on the way, because he feels what Mary feels, he feels what Martha feels, he feels the grief of the groom, he feels his own sense of loss. He's in touch with his own human emotions. Jesus weeps at a funeral. Don't you see that that dignifies our own emotions? We don't have to live at war with our own emotions. We don't have to say, well, I'd like, I'd like to grieve. My brother just died. I'd like to grieve. But I'm afraid if I do, people will think I'm not a real Christian. It's, it's okay for you to be in touch with your own feelings. It's okay for you to know what you feel. In fact, that kind of, that kind of bottling things up, that kind of can create some very serious psychological issues. Now, you have to be careful how much you get in touch with your feelings. <laughs> oh, she says, I'm in touch with my feelings. As soon as we get to the house, I'm facing to hit him with a rolling pin. <laughs> no, I'm not talking about just releasing everything that's within you, but I am saying that we don't have to be unrealistic. We don't have to play spiritual all the time. You know, I know, I know spirit-filled Christians that can't even have a real conversation. They can't even talk. They just quote Bible verses to each other. John 3.16, I know what you mean. <laughs> Philippians 4.13, oh, praise God. Come on. Really? 
Don't you see? Don't you see what I'm saying? Jesus wept is saying that it's okay. The son of God was in touch with his own human emotions. And it dignifies ours. It means that it's okay for us to know who we are and what we're experiencing. And Jesus feels compassion for that. When we, when we weep at the graveside of a loved one, Jesus is not standing over to the side of the graveyard saying, Oh, God, what's the matter with these people? Don't they believe in heaven? Of course we believe in heaven. Of course we know that people have gone to heaven, but we can feel what we feel right now. Yes, I believe in heaven. Yes, I believe in the resurrection. Yes, I rejoice rejoice in the resurrection. But today I'm missing my beloved brother. And I'm feeling that. And God feels that. Jesus is moved with compassion for my grief. He knows what I feel. A woman who's just been deserted by her husband walks off and leaves her with three kids and he's a deadbeat and won't pay his, pay his child support. Jesus is not saying to her, he's not standing at this kitchen table while she's weeping saying, oh, come on, be a big girl. He's moved. He feels what she feels. That's the compassion of the Christ. And then there is this final. If you'll turn to Luke 15, the 20th verse. This is where we want to come to for ourselves. Luke 15 and 20. You know the story of the prodigal son, as we call it. I think it should not be called the parable of the prodigal son. I think it should be called the parable of the compassionate father. Verse 20. And the boy arose and came to his father. And when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion. And ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. How wonderful to know that when I have slammed my truck into a wall and my life is a wreck and I have bruised and bloodied my own self through my own sin, that my compassionate father is still there saying, it's not over yet. It's not over yet. Jesus is the greatest cheerleader the human race has got. The world is kicking the fallen in the mouth, waiting for the next big star to collapse. I look at these pathetic, silly girls in Hollywood, these starlets, they just crash and burn and their lives are in a wreck and in and out of jail and in and out of love affairs. And and there is something irritating about their spoiled brat routine. But you know what? I have daughters who are older than they are. And I always just wish that somebody could say to these goofy girls, God loves you. He cares about you. You don't have to drink yourself into oblivion and spend the night with a different man every night and wreck your cars and drive drunk. You don't have to live like this. You don't have to live like this. There's a very little difference between a rich drunk and a poor drunk. Drunk is drunk. High is high. Stoned is stoned. The only thing that money does for you is to get you out of jail a little bit faster the first nine or ten times. I mean, am I the only one? Sometimes you just would like to smack them. But then there are other times when I think if I could just sit down with Lindsay Lohan for five minutes and say, oh, baby, don't you know? God loves you. He sees you and sees the wreck you're making of things and God's not mad at you. 
He loves you. He wants to, he wants to love on you. He wants to take you and hold you and receive you. I love this picture Jesus paints. This boy has partied away everything that he ever had, squandered his whole life and living in a state and everything, and comes home with nothing, beat up, empty, bruised, broken by his own sin. And his father runs to him, filled with compassion. Look at my poor boy. Look at my poor boy. Look what's become of him. Look how dirty he is. Look how hurt he is. Look how lonely he is. Look how guilty he is. God is moved with compassion at our guilt. Do you have one moment that you feel God stands on the walls of heaven and watches sinners walk up the aisle and says, well, nanny, nanny, boo, boo. No, God is moved with compassion. He says, I feel, I feel my longing for you. The story that we call the prodigal son, we do not have to read the story of the prodigal son to learn about sin. All we have to do is look at our own lives. We don't read the story of the prodigal son to learn about sin or its consequences. We read the story of the prodigal son to learn about a compassionate father who cares for us even when we've made a wreck of everything. Of everything. How then shall we pray? How does this make us pray? We can pray, Lord, make me tender again. How did I get so crusty and mean and judgmental and legalistic? How did I get like this? Lord, make me tender again. Break my heart again. Maybe we just... Maybe we just saw so many movies about famine and so many that we just got calloused. Pray it. Say, God, make me able to be moved. Make me to weep at what you weep at. Make me tender again. Maybe we should pray, make me conscious of the displaced, of the orphan and the refugee and the widowed and the deserted. Make me concerned for those who are hungry spiritually and physically. Make me a healing presence, unafraid to touch those who are covered with the nastiness of their own sin. Help me not to be calloused at the griefs of others or arrogant and judgmental at their self-inflicted wounds. Break my heart for the lost. How else should we pray? That's all about feeling. That's all about feeling, and we need to feel it because we have to be moved. But then we should pray, show me how to incarnate that compassion as you did. Jesus not only felt these things, he acted. He fed the 5,000. He raised the dead. He acted toward them in compassion. He healed the sick. He touched the leper. The second part of that prayer is, Lord, I, I ask you to make me tender, make me feel what you feel, but now, Lord... Show me what to do. How do I put it into action? That's really the scary part, isn't it? It's one thing to pray to feel what God feels. It's another thing for God to say, now that you feel that, here's what you do. Here's how you act. Here's how you help. Here's how you give. Here's how you go. Here's how you invite. When I was... 22-year-old Methodist preacher. There is hardly anything in the world more knowledgeable than a 22-year-old. 
I was a 22-year-old Methodist preacher, and I went to downtown Atlanta on a cold January day with a very elderly man in my congregation. He was a little bit younger than I am now. <laughs> he was a very prosperous businessman, and as we parked our car some distance away from the, we were going to the Cokesbury bookstore to buy some communion materials. As we walked down through that steel canyons of downtown Atlanta, the wind just slashing through like a knife. There was a man in the doorway huddled there. And as we passed by, he said, hey, buddy, help me. And I just said, no, not, you know, I don't have anything. That businessman I was with, he said, are you cold, friend? He said, mister, I'm freezing. He pulled off a very expensive overcoat. This was, look, this was a very expensive overcoat. Pulled it off, put it on that guy, buttoned him up. He said, that better? The guy staggered off down the street. And I said, Carlton, <laughs> I don't mean to be cynical, but don't you understand? He's just going to go to the first pawn shop he can go to and hock that coat and buy booze. He looked at me like I was talking Russian. He said, that's not on me. He said, that's not on me. But he said, now he's warm. He said, could I walk past him warm while he's freezing to death? He said, don't you feel how cold it is out here, Mark? Feel how cold it is. Furthermore, he's full of alcohol. That lowers his, his resistance. He's freezing. How could I walk on in this overcoat while that man's freezing to death? So, I, you know, I was going, I was just going to say that. That was. <laughs> See, that's where it gets all scary, isn't it? That's where it gets all scary is that we say, Lord, move me with the compassion that you feel. But if you do, that may cause me to be moved into the action of a healing ministry as you would act. I believe that is the true incarnation of the church in the 21st century is to say, Lord, show me what you feel about the world. I'm tired of sitting in arrogant judgment on people and just claiming they finally got what they deserve. I don't want to be like that. I don't want to be that guy. But guy, this is what confuses me always. Am I the only one? This is what confuses me always about things like like prison and, and, and death penalties and executions. I, that's never easy for me. Here's somebody that showed no compassion whatsoever, no compassion, murdered somebody brutally, horribly, savagely. They go through the court system. They get sentenced to death. They're going to be executed. I'm not even saying they shouldn't be executed. If you think this is a sermon against the death penalty, you're not listening to me. But on the night that they're executed, I don't understand the Christians who stand outside saying, yeah, fry him, God. I just don't understand that. What my view is that God wept over the murder he committed and God weeps the night he's executed. That's the, that's the, the conflict that I feel. That's what's confusing in this. 
It's not easy. If it's easy for you, if it's easy for you, it's because you're trying to solve the dilemma of compassion in a difficult world with a meat cleaver. So, so on the one hand, yes, I believe in, I believe in the law. I believe in judgment. I wouldn't, if I was a governor and it's my responsibility to sign for the execution, I would sign it. I would sign it. That's the law. But I'm not going to gloat. I'm not going to tell him that God hates him. And I, and I don't understand the Christianity that stands outside the place and gloats. Said God is glad you Friday night. That's not a Christianity I understand. I feel a, a Jesus who says, this is a world filled with pain and hunger and loneliness and hurt. And I want a church in it that feels what I feel and will do generously and graciously what I would do. But that is expensive Christianity. You've been listening to The Leader's Notebook with Dr. Mark Rutland. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review today's podcast. You can follow Dr. Rutland on Twitter at Dr. Mark Rutland or visit his website, drmarkrutland.com. Join us next week for another episode of The Leader's Notebook.